Boys wanted a drummer as a roadie. Thanks, Scotty boy. Righto. Well, we're continuing on at our look at Ephesus, we're at Ephesians. Uh, we're working our way through it. And um, last week, Phil had a look at what it is to live as children of the light. At um, what it means to put off the old self and to, to put on new aspects of, of Christian living. You know, when I became a Christian, I wasn't, um, wasn't a very nice person, basically. My mother thought I was all right, but um, she probably looked a little bit deeper than what most people did. But I had... I had fairly ugly character traits. I was pretty determined on destroying my own life. Pretty really could not care less about too many people around me either. But I became a Christian amongst this somehow. Some people call it the Holy Spirit, the inbreaking of the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. But when I became a Christian, there was other people who were Christians too and I moved into the same circle that they moved into and I, I just I started, I guess, living as they lived. But you want to know what? Amongst all those people who were Christians at the time when I became a Christian in, in the kind of the community that I moved into, I think about three of them are still going out of at least a dozen. What went wrong? What's happened to these people? Why, why have they just stopped running the race? Why are, they, why are they just not going anymore? It's one thing to, to become a child of God and to say, I'm going to start this new life. It's another thing to push on with it. You know, the old ways, some of the things, how I used to live, they just stopped overnight. I, I didn't drink anymore. I didn't need to even try. It just stopped. I had, I had the worst language you can imagine. And it just disappeared. Other things remained. Other things I really had to work at. And you know what? I think some of the, what went wrong with some of the people who were Christians at that time was they failed to replace the old habits of the old life with the new things of the new life. You know, Paul, in the passage last week, was talking about um, living as children of God. This week, he moves on and he, he shows us what Christian living is like. What, what does it look like? What does this new life look like? And he has some application for us to help us out. It just doesn't just doesn't magically happen. When I became a Christian, it just wasn't a magical thing where all of a sudden I had all these new things happening. I'm still working at a lot of them. And, and it really is something that the Christian has to work at. That's why Paul has written it in here for us to have a look at. And they're not just suggestions that Paul gives us. These are commands. These are must-do things. Let's just have a quick look at... Uh, we're in Ephesians 4.25 we're starting at. Now, if you think I'm speaking a foreign language, it's because I'm reading out of my 
NASB. I left my NIV at home. But that's all right because it saves me having to translate it into a decent um, translation. Therefore, laying aside, uh, I mean, verse 25, did I tell you that? Therefore, laying aside all falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbour. For we are all members of one another. Be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labour, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will be able to have something to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification or teaching according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear it. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for, for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has, has forgiven you. Therefore, in light of what we've just read, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Paul's moved on now and he sets about describing what Christian living should look like. And as I said, these, they're not just suggestions, these are commandments. And like most, it's, it's, it's ethical teaching. That's what's happening here. And like most ethical teaching in the New Testament, the concern of the passage here tonight is to reject things that destroy community and to promote things which build up Christian community. As Christians, we should live in community with each other and we should try and avoid things that destroy that community and, when they, dis- and, by- and they do it by destroying our witness to the world. So the concern here is to build up community, to avoid things that destroy community and to help us avoid sin. As Christians, we are not immune to sin and we are not immune to failure. That's why Paul is so adamant about these things. They are the keys to Christian living. Now, there's five things that we run out of room here. It's five things that we see in here that Paul addresses. He addresses the issue of truth. He addresses the emotion of anger, the action of theft, um, the action of speech, and then he finally addresses love. And the first little heading I've gotten, having graduated, I'm like the morning preachers, haven't graduated to PowerPoints yet. There's a friend of mine told me they're just props for people who can't preach properly. So... Uh, It's not true. <laughs> right. The first thing is talking about truth. I was just telling a little lie then. I'm sorry, forgive me. First heading is put away lying and speak the truth in 425. It's no surprise 
that the first ethical command should be on honesty. When we consider the amount of focus that he has on it in chapter 4, he addresses it in verses 15, 21 and 24. But here Paul is drawing on the words of the prophet Zechariah in chapter 8, 16, where he says, Speak truth one to another. Lying is no longer a resource in the Christian's arsenal. For Christians, truth is not a choice. It is a necessity. God is truth. And if we say he lives in us, what part of him allows us to speak falsely to one another? Lying is destructive to both the person who is is lying and to the relationships around us. It, it devalues relationships when we lie. And it devalues our dignity. By lying to each other, we are deceiving each other. That's where the, the devalue of the dignity comes. Who here has ever felt when they found out that someone who they thought they knew, and they thought they could rely on, had been lying to them about something? Who's walked away from discovering that thinking, geez, I feel so much better? for knowing that my friend was lying to me about an issue? Lying to one another is deceiving each other and it destroys relationships and it destroys the community that the Holy Spirit's trying to build. Christians, sometimes they don't lie completely, but do they? The way a Christian lies is he either exaggerates or he just leaves a few things out because Let's face it, we, we know we're not supposed to lie. Why do we do that? I think we do it because we fear. We fear that if people really know what's going on in our lives, that they'll reject us. If we can't sort of speak truthfully about what's going on in our lives, people might think we're failures and people might think we're not living as Christians. I guess an example of this is, you know, accountability to each other. If I have a problem with pornography or something or other and I can't tell the people who are supposed to be helping me out in my Christian walk with it, I deceive them, I lie to them. This has just come to me actually. I was in a small group once, then I should tell you this, where we found out we'd been in a small group. <laughs> None of the people are here, that's why I'm telling you. I just had to do a quick thing. Where we, where we, it was a small group and the key to it was honesty. We'd get together at six o'clock in the morning and we'd share what was going on. Down the road we found out that one of, our, one of the people in our small group had just been lying to us, outright lying to us about his life was a complete fraud. And it just wrecked the group. I don't, and I think only one of us is actually now back in a small group. It had a devastating impact. Paul's motivation about lying comes in the second part of the verse there, why we shouldn't do it. He says we're all members of the one body. In Romans 12.5, Paul expresses it like this. So we who are many are one in body in Christ and individually members one of another. So taking Paul's analogy as being members of one body, Christians in the Christian church form a unity like a body 
let's just have a bit of a think about that, about how a body operates. If you're walking along down the road and your eyes see a snake or a big bear trap or a pit of lava or whatever it is you happen to see as you're walking down High Street in Wodonga, <laughs> do they allow you to step into that? No, they don't. They, they stop you. If you're at home and you're eating your mother-in-law's cooking and you notice a strange taste in it, kind of like arsenic, <laughs> does your mouth allow you to swallow that? No, it doesn't. It says, hang on a minute, something's wrong. It's almost an unstoppable reflex that prevents further harm coming to the rest of the body, even though your mouth's just this little part here or your foot's down there, it doesn't want to deceive. It's a natural reaction. It speaks, it sends truthful messages to the rest of the body. This is how we are to be. This is what Paul's saying. We are to consider how, how and what we do, how it will affect other members of the body. Lying to each other says, I don't respect you. I don't value you. I'm not too interested in what happens. Truth is an imperative for building community. A community is based on mutual reliance. People can be trusted for support. In speaking truth to our neighbour, we are saying, you can count on me. Our relationship will not mislead you or cause you harm. I have to stop and think. Have I ever in action, word or deed misled someone who is supposedly my brother or sister in Christ? It's not too many of us can say we haven't. This speaking in truth is not a mandate, though, to just go and insult people. Some people think that speaking the truth means that you can just walk up to someone and just lay, lay into them, telling them how it is. Just, Mason, you've got a big nose. That doesn't, it's true, but it doesn't help me. When you're going to approach someone by telling them the truth, think about it. Is it edifying? Is it lifting them up? When I was putting this together, I was having conversations with people about lying. And the thing came up about lying for the greater good. Can we ever lie? What about if I was going to lie to save someone's life? Like there's so many stories that come out of Nazi Germany about people lying so that the Gestapo didn't kill people that were in the cupboard. It's a tough question. I'm going to answer it pretty stiffly. No. There is nothing in the Bible that says lying is okay, no matter what the circumstances. When you lie to try and control a situation, you think that you can bring about a greater good, what you're doing is you're saying, hang on a minute, God, I'll take care of this situation. I'll take care of this situation. You replace God. Lying is never good. Lying is destructive. And it's not something that is a characteristic of the Christian. Paul says, what is the characteristic? What does Christian living look like? It looks like this. Speak truth to one another. The second point, I'm trying to get a drink here. The second point that he gets on, I'm going to have one. That's better. The second point that he gets on to is 
Be angry, but do not sin. I sort of amused when I got this passage because I thought it would be humorous to preach on and there'd be lots of funny jokes, but because I knew looking at this passage was going to be a painful experience. And I heard people say that some of the best messages come from um, the preachers being carved up themselves by what they're looking at, what they're researching to preach. I am somebody whose emotions are close to the surface. All of my emotions are close to the surface. For various reasons over the years, I've managed to learn how to hide them and control them, suppress them if you like, most of them. But anger is one that has the ability to surface. Have a highly volatile fuse. Sometimes it's long, sometimes it's short. But when it goes off, generally it's never very good. And it's, I guess it's embarrassing in a way. And I feel ashamed because I know that's not where I'm supposed to be. Preparing this message has been like swallowing broken glass as I've had to examine my own life and sort of get up here and speak to you guys about things that perhaps I don't have down pat. Perfectly. Some people use this verse to justify anger. John Stott, who is just, an, a, is just a theological mountain, he's a legend, suggests from this text that Christians should get more angry. He says that a person that doesn't get angry just doesn't care. Indeed, Christians should get angry. They should get angry about injustice. They should get angry about poverty, about racism, about lies, about abuse that happens in our community. For sure, not all anger is sin. And no doubt there is a righteous anger, such as we see in Jesus in Mark 3, 5, where he goes to heal a guy's hand. And all the people are worried about is that he's going to break some man-imposed rule. Jesus is angered at their hard hearts. In the temple is the one we always think about where Jesus is just throwing tables around and scaring people out. But Jesus' anger never led to sin because his emotions were always kept perfectly in control. We must be sure that we do not confuse righteous indignation and wounded pride for righteous anger. But righteous anger is not what this particular verse is on about. In Ephesians 4.26, the primary intent is not to promote a type of anger, but to prevent anger from causing sin. I like the way Psalm 4 puts it. Psalm 4, 4 says, tremble, I'm going to move out here, tremble but do not sin. You can picture it. Something happens and you just go, right. Kids break into the cupboard and just throw Milo everywhere. You tremble, 
but you're not to sin. The image that came into my head when I read this is that Bundy bear ad. You know, where the guy's at the bar and the little jockey guy walks in. Get out of my way, I want a drink. And goes up to the bar and pushes the bloke out of the way. The big guy. Anyone watch the Bundy Bear ads? You don't because you're all Christians, you don't drink. Anyway. <laughs> it's another lie. <laughs> the, guy, the guy grabs the little jockey. And that's the moment of tremble where he's thinking, man, I am going to drive you through this bar. Bang, head first. But what does he do? He goes, I have two drinks, thanks. That's the moment where he doesn't allow the anger to go any further. He, he finds an avenue out. As Christians, our avenue out is to turn immediately to God. When you're angry, don't act on that anger. Seek God. Human anger is nearly always destructive. The New Testament attitude towards it is extremely negative. James 1.20 points out that the anger of a man does not achieve God's righteousness. Anger is a self-centered emotion by and large. Like lying, anger destroys both the angry person and the community. When anger gets hold of you, you become consumed by it. It becomes the focus of your life. And as people whose focus is supposed to be on God and who are supposed to be consumed by His Spirit, this is obviously a bad place to be. Unresolved anger can lead to physical harm, not just of the person you're angry with, but of you. There's plenty of medical evidence to show that anger that you just allow to sit in your life, it, just, it actually can make you sick. Ulcers and things and all sorts of weird stuff. The story of Saul and David is a showcase of what anger can do to a perfectly good person. Saul is God's anointed king. This is the man God has anointed to be the king of his people. There's nothing wrong with Saul. He's a good bloke. But the problem is Saul allows anger. He gets jealous and he allows anger just to go on unchecked to the point where it just consumes his life and he forgets about running the kingdom and the job he's there to do and he pursues David, just obsesses him. And in the end, Saul just loses the plot, becomes mentally unstable, costs him his mind, costs him his life and the life of his son. Saul, who started out with so much promise, is one of the most tragic figures in the Old Testament because he let anger go unchecked. Now the plague has cost the human race so dearly as anger. Paul in the text concedes that people are going to make us angry. But it's what we do with that that is imperative. Anger must not take up residence in our lives. If it does, it's like a cancer that infects and mutates into further resentment and hostilities. Anger can act like a beachhead for the devil to launch attacks from. It's an inroad for him, as anger usually leads to other sins if it's not stopped. Paul's motivation here is that we, would, by not allowing anger to get the better of us, we negate a place where the devil can set up camp to do his destructive work. Can you think of anything more delightful to the devil than to see Christians just tearing each other apart. 
how that must look to the world looking on. should make us feel a little ill. That's why Paul says, shut the door. Get, deal with it quickly. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. It means deal with it as soon as possible. As in verse 31 points out, all bitterness, wrath and anger, put them away along with all malice. Clearly anger and its associated feelings do not fit well with this new life. They are not part of what Christian living looks like. That the sun should not go down on our anger is Paul's way of saying, even though we, can, even though we will get angry, we're to deal with it quickly and to set it aside. Third point that Paul moves on to is stealing, is theft. And I've very, I like this heading, this is my favourite one. From theft to philanthropist. You like that? The next issue that he moves on to is really tied up with integrity. Stealing comes in many forms. We can, steal, we, don't, we can steal through so many different ways and we like to justify how we do it. Oh, they'll never know that I took it. They've got so much. Yeah, how much stuff Bill Gates has got? Who cares if I copy his Microsoft stuff? Paul is saying to the Christians, those who did wrong and met their own selfish desires must now work in order to contribute to someone else's needs. It's a shift. There's no greater evidence of the change in someone's heart than the, and the presence of the Spirit than a shift of motives from self to, self to selflessness. This is a compelling example of what it is to die to yourself and to rise in this new life with Christ. When we start thinking of others before we think of ourselves, From the day we're born, we've been screaming, look at me. And it's not long before we move to that's mine. I've been, a, I've been observing it with my kids. My little mate Lockie, he's a classic. His favourite saying at the moment is, that's mine. And when he gets together with his cousin Ash, they would fight to the death over the ownership of anything, a little stone on the side of the road. They're simply fighting over it because they just don't want the other one to have it. They think they should have it. They don't own it. You know what? Some of us never move on from the terrible twos. We just learn to hide it from each other. Ephesians 4.28 ignites a bomb under our self-centred thinking. Our goal as Christians is not to line our own pockets, but to ensure that everybody can actually have pockets. We don't exist for ourselves, but for relationships with God and with others. These verses are speaking broader than just you know stealing money out of your mum's purse. It's driving at our motives and our desires. Wealth and material possessions are not to be, to be hoarded at any cost. They are to be earned. They are to be respected. They are to be handled with diligence and stewardship for the work of God. God is the giver. There's no need for you to go and pinch stuff for yourself. Or do things 
deceptively. He is able to provide all our needs. There's no need for us to give him a hand. Integrity is at stake. When we steal, we say, God is enough, not enough to look after me. We also say that I'm more important than that person over there. Stealing is a very self-centred action. There's lots of grey areas of stealing. I come out of the building industry and um, I know people who have built houses with stuff that they've just acquired from job sites, you know? You order some cement for a job perhaps or some timber. You whack a little bit more on. They won't miss it. Stealing. Taxes. Accepting cash money. You're stealing. One of the things that I really hated dealing with when I was in the building industry was work cover. Anyone here from work cover? <laughs> work cover are legitimised criminals. They are like legalised mafia. They, uh, they just take your money and give you nothing for it. And I had to pay tens of thousands of dollars to these people. But some people would say, well, let's only just pay for one or two people. We won't cover anyone, everyone, because let's face it, what's the chance of everybody getting injured? I had a little rule, and it was just, no matter how much you don't like it, just pay it. Tax, work cover, whatever, just pay it. You'll sleep at night. One day my accountant rang me up and he said, Mason, good news. Work cover are auditing you. You have to show all your wages and all your records for the last six years. It took me a week to get it together. Went into the, into the conference room. My accountant said to me, you know, I've never felt so relaxed walking into one of these audits. You've got nothing to hide. I could have quite easily not paid everything. When we, when we steal, sooner or later we're going to be found out. Now or in the next life, you're going to be found out. Stealing sort of says something about our relationship with God, doesn't it? If we have to steal. How should Christianity look? Steal no longer. Instead, provide for the less fortunate. Micah, along with other prophets, has some very telling things to say about social justice and how communities should provide for each other. As Christians, we're not to be involved in any form of stealing, even if no one will ever know. At stake is our own understanding of our relationship with God, not to mention the broader community and our ability to witness to the integrity of the God we say is indwelling. What should the Christian life look like? It should be marked by a generous heart, not by a selfish one. The fourth thing that Paul addresses, the fourth characteristic of what Christian living should look like, the fourth, I guess, good habit to replace the bad habits with is this. Our speech, rotten fish or gifts of grace. Nothing reveals more quickly the condition of someone's heart than their speech. Mel Gibson 
who we all thought was so wonderful not so long ago with his movie The Passion, revealed just what sort of a person he is when he was pulled up for drink driving not so long ago. Just words, vicious words spewed out of his mouth as he was arrested. With speech, God created the universe. His words are powerful. Ours are too. If I was to get my good friend Sam Malpass up here, she could tell us about performative language. At least I think she could. She's in the language. Language we use to accomplish tasks and establish realities. You see, language is powerful stuff. We use it to perform tasks and establish realities. Sure thought so. She wrote a song about it. But how she wishes she could take back time to replace some of the things she said. James agrees. In three... Chapter 3, 5 to 9, he talks about the tongue and he describes the damage that it can do. He also says the tongue praises God, but yet it it can tear people down. He compares it to a little spark that can burn down a whole forest. Paul also uses vivid descriptive language to expose how Christian speech should be and what to avoid. He says, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. The word unwholesome is used to describe rotten fish or rotten fruit. It can also be used to describe stones that that crumble, that are weak, that are no good for building. Either way, the picture is not lost. Let no foul or bad thing proceed from your mouth. And it's not so much that the words, it's not so much to do with swearing. This is not a passage that addresses the issue of swearing. You don't use this passage teaching kids not to swear. That's not what he's driving at here. What he's driving at is that our speech, it's the quality of our speech. It shouldn't be like rotten fish or weak stones. The concern here is that our speech should be used for building each other up, not causing rot or not being able to not be built upon. As Australians, we're great at backhanded compliments. We'd hate to think. We can't even get it right when we're trying to say something nice. We don't want people to know how we really feel. We'd hate for people to think that we actually care. So we disguise kind of feelings of affection, if you like. But Paul says, as Christians, things that mark and identify the Christian life, one of them is this. And the the literal reading of the text here is that your speech, speak in a way that it may give grace to the hearers. When you talk to someone, your words should bring grace to the hearer. Your words shouldn't be words that are like rotten fish, rotten apples, or like bad stones, like stones that crumble when we're thinking about actions in a life that builds the community of God Weak stones cannot be built on. They just disintegrate under pressure. How should the Christian life look like? It should be marked by people who speak words of grace to each other. The motivation or the, I guess the negative motivation, if you like, here is that Paul says as Christians, and only Christians are capable of grieving well, I think only Christians are capable of grieving the Holy Spirit. 
And this is Paul's motivation here at the end of this. He says, the end of earlier on, he's given instructions about warning, don't let the devil have a foothold, a place in your life. That's what anger can do. And here, about Christian conversation, he follows it up with a warning, if you like, or a reverse motivation. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. All sin causes God sorrow. But the sin of the Christian grieves the Spirit of God. And we talk about the Holy Spirit when we use the whole thing like that's his name. God's Spirit, though, is holy. It's a descriptor of what he's like. So that Spirit lives in me. That Spirit lives in Will, in Anthea, in all of us. And when we talk poorly about each other, or when we say things that bring each other down, this is really grieving the spirit because that's not what he's on about. He's on about building each other up, about edifying each other through our speech. And when we don't do it, Paul makes a special note of it here, you are grieving God's spirit. We're to be people, our lives, our conduct is to be marked by the fact that we speak graciously to each other. final point that Paul moves on to is to live a life of love. In the final three verses, Paul moves to the life ethos, if you like. This is, this is the complete counter action to the negative things, if you like. Christians should live, how they should live. They should, I've got to read that again. Paul moves on to the life ethos, the heart of how Christians should live. If you get this right, you will negate the devil's ability to land in your life. And you will live a life that pleases the spirit rather than grieves it. You are intended to be a reflection of what Christianity should look like. That's what Paul is saying. Here's what it should look like. This is how you should live. One of the prime things of this that he moves on to now is forgiveness. You know, you could go anywhere and you would find people who would tell you that Christianity, one of its main features is supposed to be that Christians forgive. But most of the time they would say it almost sarcastically because the reality is, is that Christians can be some of the most unforgiving people, even more unforgiving than our pagan friends. Friendships that are supposedly united by this, this spirit, this community that we're trying to build up, are disintegrated, are destroyed. Churches split. Fences are put up. People move. They don't talk to each other anymore because they can't forgive. Christians can be proud. And Paul is saying this is not how Christian living looks. The expression do unto others as you would have them do unto you is a long way from what is required. Here, Paul says, Christians are to treat others as Christ has treated them. In chapter 5, 1 to 2, Paul reminds us that our rebellion, our bitterness, our anger, our self-centeredness toward God has cost him his son. Not inadvertently. No one would ever dare say that humanity has not violated God in the most grotesque way. 
No one in this building anyway. Yet God responds with the most amazing way. He doesn't pack up and move. He humbles himself. He takes our cup of shame. He takes ownership of the situation. Jesus lays down his rights. I think he probably had the right to really lash out. But he lays them down in order to forgive us, that we might know forgiveness. This is an extreme example that is being set here. God is the one who has been offended by our actions, and yet he is the one who moves to forgive. As Christians, we are asked to break the cycles of this world by not retaliating, by not imposing our rights over others. We are to be people who serve. This is a part of dying with Christ. A lot of people think that forgiveness negates justice, that it is a weak way of dealing with painful and unjust situations. Forgiveness is letting people off the hook and justice just kind of evaporates. I'll ask you, who's the centre of that kind of thinking? I am. This week we've seen one of the most amazing examples of how Christian how this actually works out. The, the Christian living of forgiveness. The Amish people. A community in Georgetown, Pennsylvania. Know what sort of a pill forgiveness is to swallow. Sometime at the start of last week, the end of last week, some men that lived in their community who hadn't addressed the issues of anger and, and things and hadn't replaced them with healthy habits, just snapped and went into a school in their community and shot dead five of their children. And others are lying in hospital. Some of them still fighting for their lives. How did this community, which is supposed to be one of the safest communities on earth, they do everything they can to honour God and yet this has happened in their community. How did they react? Did they pack up and move? Do you know what? I watched a few video clips on what they were doing. As they were taken in their little buggies, heading towards burying their kids, they're driving past the house of the one who murdered their children and they're offering support. They're waving to his parents. They want this person to know that they're forgiven and that they are there to support them. It's, it's mind-blowing. But this is the sort of forgiveness. This is, this is what Christian living is. The reaction has been amazing. One of the reporters who was sitting there listening to the person report back, when it flicked back to her, you could see she was shaken by it. And the only thing she could say was, that's inspiring. And almost like an exclamation mark, she went, God, you bet, God. Another bloke starts his thing off, he says, about what's happening in the Amish community. A lesson in dignity, forgiveness, Incredible strength and towering faith. That's how 
Christian life should look. They are living it out. Wimpy, soft people should not apply for the job. The weak cannot forgive. Only the strong have this capacity. Forgiveness is not the absence of accountability. It is the refusal to let past wrong destroy the present. Paul says when it comes to forgiveness, we are to be imitators of God. God's forgiveness was extreme. As he went to that cross, the world poured its anger and its hatred upon him. And as he hung on that cross, his words were, forgive them. And God, when we ask for forgiveness, he removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. This is how we are supposed to be. And Paul doesn't stop there. He says, walk in love just as Christ loved you. Christian faith is not a passive religion. It's aggressive pursuit, productive, beneficial, God-honouring lives. In Colossians 2.6, Paul says, As you have received Christ, continue to walk in him. In Romans 12.2, in the following verses, Paul talks about the transforming and the renewing of our minds. There is an ongoingness about Christian living. There's a motion forward. Here in Ephesus, we have the targets of what it looks like when we walk in Christ, what Christian living should look like. In 1 Peter 2.21, he says this, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ suffered for you, leaving for you an example to follow in his footsteps. 1 John 2.6 says this, The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. These things are not options for the believers. They are imperatives. These things that Paul has discussed tonight are the distinct markers that show what Christian living is like. The body of the church is marked by people who have traded hostility for helpfulness, corruption for compassion, Christians are builders, they are not destroyers. They are to be productive, addressing the needs of people, spiritual, physical, emotional, financial needs. Why? Because this is what Jesus did to reveal a heart of God. And we are to walk in the same love that Jesus did. This is why, this is why what we are called to while we are here on this planet, God's spirit is, is grieved when we don't live a life worthy of the calling. How should Christian living look? No lying. Speak honestly to each other. Control your anger. Do not steal but provide. Speak words of grace, not destruction. Why? Because these things negate the devil and prevent sin. And they please God's Holy Spirit. Walk in love. Reveal Christ through your actions. Jesus is gone. The only thing left on this planet to tell the world what God looks like is us. And here Paul is giving us the descriptors of how it should look. Are you playing at Christianity? Or are you really living in the grace that has been afforded to you? You have been forgiven. You have been loved. You have been restored. 
How now would you reflect such a gracious gift? How is the community of believers built up by our actions? How has God been glorified to a watching world by the way we live? Who would be compelled to stop and consider the merits of our lives and our life's witness? Don't be one who grieves God's spirit by living a wimpy, lifeless Christianity. Live like you've been changed. Live like you've got something to live for. Live like you've got something worth having. Live like you mean it. Father, as we just consider what a, what a tough gig it can be to be a Christian sometimes. And Lord, we're asked to replace the old life with these, with these things, these descriptors of what Christian living looks like. And sometimes it just isn't natural to do it, Lord. But these are the things you have called us to, Lord. And I guess in a way we just want to surrender to you tonight and say, change us, Lord. Change us from the inside to the out, that we might be a reflection of who you are. And we thank you that you have just not left us alone to try and figure it out, that you have given us great men like Paul to write down how Christian living should look. Amen.